Hey, you're listening to Corrupting the Youth. Liturgy is a way of life with Father Matt Bolter, David Beadle, Ian Hyde, and Jason Eslicker, where we talk about theology and philosophy around the kitchen table. Hope you enjoy. Welcome. I thought we had a good discussion last week. And so before we launch into a discussion of this week's guiding text, Myth Become Fact by C.S. Lewis, um, I thought we might just ask if anyone had any thoughts, lingering thoughts, questions, comments about last week. I had fun. Thought it was a good discussion. It was a good discussion. I've just been thinking a lot about the um, the possibility or impossibility, rather, of anything existing outside of linguistic concepts. Well, I think that is a perfect segue into today's text. Because in today's text, what C.S. Lewis is saying, among other things, is that there is an important sense in which myth, and we can talk about what myth means in a minute, um, there's an important sense in which myth has a priority over what he calls fact, which I think goes hand in hand with more normal ways of thinking in our modern world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, linguistic constructions. Yeah. Um, what's a myth? Greek muthos. M, like that, that second letter in muthos or mythos is an upsilon, or sometimes it's a Y, and I think it's called an Y. I don't know. I don't know what it's called. But it can be a Y or a U. Mythos, muthos. What's, what is that? What is a mythos? There, for him, there's a, a, a gap between what he called maybe discursive reason or abstract reasoning, and he uses the example of mathematics as a more pure example of this, right? Mm-hmm. And our uh, normal everyday experience within the particular. Um, and he talks mm-hmm. about myth as a way of connecting or mediating those two things, bridging the gap between those two things. So for example, yep. he uses uh, Orpheus and Euricity, and this is from the second or third page. He says, at this moment, for example, I am trying to understand something very abstract indeed. The fading, vanishing of tasted reality as we try to grasp it with a discursive reason. That is, that is pretty abstract. Uh-huh. And probably I've made hev- heavy weather of it. But if I remind you instead of Orpheus and Euricity, how he was suffered to lead her by the hand, but when he turned round to look at her, she disappeared. What was merely a principle becomes imaginable. So... What is abstract is made concrete, it's made real in myth. Yeah. Amen. I think you got us, you plunged us into the essay, which is awesome. Um, I I, I guess for listeners who maybe have never thought about this kind of stuff, um, at at a more basic level, mythos just means story. Story. Right. And yeah, like if if you read... If one were to read Aristotle's Poetics, he has a couple of chapters in there where he defines mythos, and he talks about things like plot, things like conflict. But, interestingly, one of the things that he does say is that characteristic of story or myth is that it does have some kind of effective impact on the the listeners, on the audience so that the audience is moved in some way, whether it's joy or sorrow. In some ways, the listeners are moved by emotion. 
Aristotle says that, and so I think that that links up with what C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. is saying, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, it's interesting, Jason, that when you were describing what C.S. Lewis says, you emphasized, not wrongly, but you emphasized that myth makes the abstract concrete. Mm-hmm. But could you not just as easily say that myth makes the concrete ab- abstract? Yes. I mean, if if yeah. if you if you have these two extremes, the the like what we could call concrete particulars, mm-hmm. stuff that you can touch and taste. He uses taste a lot mm-hmm. in the essay. Stuff mm-hmm. you can taste on the one hand, versus something like mathematics on the far other extreme. Right? Would you agree that for C.S. Lewis, myth is both of those, or or at least it participates in both of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, I think the way he puts it is he says, our, our dilemma, which he calls a tragic dilemma, mm-hmm. is to taste and not to know, or to know and not to taste. Mm-hmm. Those are, that's the dilemma. Right. Right. And then for him, the solution is myth. Mm-hmm. We come nearest to experiencing as a concrete what can otherwise be understood only as an abstraction. Through myth. Yeah. So have y'all thought about this in other contexts of life, in other studies? I mean, um, I, I, I know that in my dissertation research, one of the books that I've been reading is Joseph Pieper, The End of Time. And he makes it, Pieper is an author that I particularly love. And he talks a lot about how all real philosophy admits that if it's really going to see into the roots of things, it must have recourse to a pre-philosophical tradition, hmm. a quote, pre-philosophical tradition. Uh, philosophy all by itself can't explain everything. Um, maybe it can explain more than modern science can as, a, as an even more specified methodology, hmm. but even philosophy can't uh, explain everything. It, it must, according to Joseph Pieper, make recourse to some pre-philosophical tradition. And what sorts of things does Pieper have in mind there? Well, for people like Plato, I would argue, uh, Pieper has in mind the Greek myths of like Homer mm-hmm. um, and Hesiod. But for Christians, or even modern people, you might say, people people who live after the advent of the gospel, um, one of the main pre- pre-philosophical traditions that I think people would have in mind would be the Christian story. Uh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So I think that that you know there there is a kind of priority, or, or many people have held that there's a kind of priority of mythos story over more abstract scientific modes of thinking. Yeah. Modes mm-hmm. of thinking that involve universals, that is to say, genus and species. Mm-hmm. This actually, I've been looking for this throughout this week, and in my romantic, romantic era class, uh, and obviously I have this sheet here that you guys don't have in front of you, mm-hmm. but it's the preface to Frankenstein by mm. Mary Shelley. Mm. And it's really interesting mm. um, because... She talks about how the event or the event disclosed in the work may not be. She says, um, 
I shall not be supposed as according to the remotest degree of serious faith to such an imagination. She's saying it's not entirely true, obviously. Yet, in assuming it as the basis of a work of fancy, I have not considered myself as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors. And she goes on to talk about how this myth of Frankenstein um, affords a point of view to the imagination for the delineating of human passions more comprehensive mm. and more commanding wow. than any which the ordinary relations of existing events can yield. So right. mere concrete events can't yield mm. these delineations of human passions, which you just talked about, the affective mm-hmm. impact. Which Aristotle talks about. Right. And so she talks about, she says, mm-hmm. yes, she's endeavored to preserve what she says, what she calls the truth of the elementary principles of human nature, Right. But later on, she says that she is not committing um, to what she calls the innervating effects um, of, of, the, of present novels in her time that basically praise the amiableness of domestic affection or the excellence of universal virtue. She's not doing that. She's not doing that. And she even says that she is not prejudicing any philosophical doctrine of whatever kind. Now... Obviously, at least what I believe is, there's no way that she can't be prejudicing a philosophical doctrine, right? Even if it's unconscious. She even said she was a minute ago because she's, quote, being true to human human nature. nature. Exactly. So there can be some incoherence, but what I think of is that she's when she says philosophical doctrine, she's talking about overly rationalistic, abstract doctrines that have to do with universal virtue or what she said, the amiableness of domestic affection, Mm -hmm. etc., and so she's appealing to myth for its ability to affect people. Yeah. You know? And, and I think C.S. Lewis would give her a high five for that. that. That actually leads me to another thing, because there's something that's correlated to this distinction between abstract thinking versus, we could say, mythological discourse. Mm-hmm. And that is the divisions of the soul, according to Plato and Aristotle, of reason and desire. And so, like, I'm doing my PhD research on, in part on, on St. Bonaventure, who lived in the 13th century, was a, a frenemy of Thomas Aquinas. And um, uh, one of the things I'm going to try to argue in my dissertation, God willing, is that one of the reasons Bonaventure privileges mythos over logos is that he privileges desire over reason. Hmm. And so so these these two different dichotomies overlap. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a similar structure. But but it's interesting. I think C.S. Lewis isn't simply highlighting the effective result or impact that that stories can have. He's actually saying they also communicate concrete truth. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, the, the myths that C.S. Lewis is interested in do seem to be universal, more universal myths than just a single individual sitting down and writing a story like Mary Shelley or even someone like J.R.R. Tolkien. Right. right. Um, C.S. Lewis seems to think that these myths like Orpheus and Eurydice, mm-hmm. Eurydice or um, one that I've thought about in the past is um, Demeter, the myth of Demeter, 
Um, Alexander Schmiemann talks about that in his book For the Life of the World, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, the, these myths communicate something that's held to be true to vast civilizations of people. And so, yes, they are, they do have an emotional impact. High five. Right. But they also communicate truth in some way. Well, and I think that, I think that what Mary Shelley was really saying is that, and this may be the romantic agenda or romantic tendency or proclivity or whatever, is that it's actually in these, ironically, in these myths that in some way, contradict like strict facticity in a, in a way contradict that but in a mm -hmm. bigger way actually affirm a deeper truth about human nature hmm. I think that's that's what she's saying and, about myth yeah and and I guess my what I, I my slight pushback would to her not you mm -hmm. would be okay that's cool that, that you're so brilliant that you can sit in your armchair and spin out a myth out of your own head and mm -hmm. I, I don't mean to be cynical she, Mary Shelley is brilliant but these other myths are more primeval. Other myths like Homer, like Hesiod, like, uh, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Right, right. Or right. like the creation story that we find in Genesis 1. Or the Jesus story, uh, yeah. a, a God becoming, being born of a virgin and, and being killed and then rising from the dead. I mean, these are myths of a more cosmic scope yeah. than any one person would be able to write, I would suggest. Well, and just to respond to that, and this is this is a bit of a rabbit trail going on talking about Frankenstein, but she does say she brings up the Iliad, huh. the tragic poetry of Greece, Shakespeare and the Tempest and Midnight Summer's Dream, and especially Milton in Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. And she says they conform to this rule. And the most humble novelist who seek to confer or receive amusement from his labors may, without presumption, apply to prose fiction a license, or rather a rule, from the adoption of which so many exquisite combinations of human feeling have resulted in the highest specimens of poetry. And so I think in, yeah. a, in a way that she is trying to place herself, or what she's doing, at least. Yeah, in that tradition. In that tradition, which is interesting. It is. It is. And I haven't read Frankenstein. Yeah. But I mean, like, if you read Milton's Paradise Lost, it is very clear that he is doing the same thing, but with a twist, non-identical repetition, that people like Dante, Virgil, Homer did. If Mary Shelley's doing that, I don't know. Maybe she is. Um, for example, um, Dante invokes the muses at the beginning of his poem, mm -hmm. just like Homer does. Mm -hmm. If, if memory serves, Milton does the same thing, except that he invokes the Holy Spirit hmm. instead of like, you know, the muse, the seven ancient muses of the ancient world or whatever. Interesting. Um, yeah. So like, it'd be interesting to see, like that would actually be a really good paper for you to write is to ask the question, does Mary Shelley in any sense invoke the muses? Hmm. Yeah. Especially given the stuff that she wrote in that preface. That's really good. But I guess my main point is the, these cosmic myths, it seems to me that you can't say that they were written by any single one person. It's more that they emerged maybe through a tradition of oral storytelling. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that's true for the 
Hebrew Bible. I think that's true for um, Homer. It's not. It's not true for Milton. It's not even true for Dante. Interesting. Well, it's at least something to think about. Yeah. While I read Frankenstein and other romantic works. So for Lewis, when he talks about myth, is he merely talking about just? And we we brought the word at the beginning, story in general, or is he saying something more particular about story, as in it's a result of oral tradition that communicate? Uh, it communicates cosmic truth. Is it one or the other, or is it merely just, you know? So I think it depends on what we mean by story. I mean, at one level, it just is the fact that Mm -hmm. the best way to translate the Greek word mythos Mm -hmm. is the English word story Mm -hmm. or narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, I I think you're right. C.S. Lewis, I think that his, his, his essay does have something to say about any old story. Mm-hmm. Any old story at all, um, the Harry Potter stories or uh, the Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, mm-hmm. but he is particularly talking about these more cosmic, uh, primeval stories. It seems to me. Okay. Well, he even he actually I think he answers this a little bit. Um, so. Briefly, obviously the beginning of the essay opens up with a conversation with this character, Corineus. 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 Corineus, yeah. Corineus, the, the kind of the, your typical um, modernist, hyper-modernist man. Um, Christianity is, <clears throat> modern Christianity is just um, kind of a nostalgic or sentimental, um, ap- appealing to the vestiges of original barbaric Christianity. We need to do away with it. We need to progress and move on, et cetera, et cetera. But he says, C.S. Lewis says, says the real answer of even the most modernist Christianity to Quirinius is the same. Even assuming, which I must constantly deny, even assuming that the doctrines of historic Christianity are merely mythical. So I think this refers to those myths that, uh-huh. that have no weight of truth, per se. It is the myth which is the vital and nourishing element of the whole concern. So at the very least... I mean, at the bare bottom, not even considering necessarily Christian myth, just myth, mm-hmm. even if it's if it has no, even if it's merely mythical, it is still more beautiful than whatever modern oh. rationalism has to offer. That's right. That's true. That would be true if we can assume for a moment that The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho is beautiful. Yeah. C.S. Lewis would give that a high five. Yeah. Or the Harry Potter stories, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And let's assume there's nothing else to the English right. monarchy, which is another example he brings up. Let's just assume that the English monarchy is a vestige of old, older times, mm-hmm. and it's just there for old people to, mm-hmm. you know, not get upset, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever with the with progress. He would even say that it's it's the monarchy that actually provides. Uh, beauty and meaning. It's the best part of the government. Now, are you saying that that would be true even if it weren't connected to some deep metaphysical truth for C.S. Lewis? I am saying that. Right, and I agree. He says that. I mean, he says, even assuming that the doctrines of historic Christianity are merely mythical, it is the myth which is the vital and nourishing element. I mean, it's... That's right. Now, it's not merely mythical. Right. And for C.S. Lewis, the English monarchy is connected to some deeper metaphysical truth. Uh Uh-huh. Right. So it's even more legit. So then I think that in the same way, maybe, in the same way that last week we talked about how 
for Pigstock the Eucharist because of what the Eucharist is and what it means. It provides meaning for all of language. Well, maybe. <laughs> now I'm, I'm regretting even saying this, but we'll see. <laughs> um, maybe for the myth of the Incarnation, it establishes other myths, like a stone thrown in the mm-hmm. pond. Right. It kind of has this ripple effect on other myths that follow it. So yeah, let, let's, let's talk about the Incarnation, because I think that it's interesting. C.S. Lewis says, as for myth, so also for the Incarnation. In other words, hmm. in the same way that myth is the fusing of two things. What are those two things? Abstract thought and effective experience. Mm-hmm. Or abstract thought and engagement with the particular. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget that emotions are particular things. They involve our bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that, that myth is a fusion of these two things, so also the incarnation is a fusion of two things. What are the two things that get fused for C.S. Lewis in the Incarnation? Myth and fact. That's right. Mm-hmm. So everything that we've just said about myth, the fact that it communicates an abstract truth that you can taste, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all of that is true for the Incarnation, but it's not the entire truth of the Incarnation. Hmm. The incarnation consists of that reality. And it happened on a particular day, in a particular region, underneath a particular ruler, yeah. That's right. It's a historical fact. Everything is in order, I think he says. Hmm. Okay, now. I think now you can say more about how the incarnation is kind of like the Eucharist. Yeah, well, that's the question then uh, for me. Now, so to first to talk about the Eucharist in order to compare them, I mean, with the Eucharist, we can see something about language and signification or signs that is always true, but it's heightened in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So, then my, so then my question is, is that the case also for the incarnation in that... <sighs> The incarnation reveals to us that actually, in fact, yes, myth does connect concrete reality and experience to abstraction and vice versa, abstraction to concrete reality. Um, does does is is the incarnation what actually makes that possible and therefore makes it true of all of all things? I think that I don't think that C.S. Lewis would want to say that other myths are also facts right mm. right yeah I, I don't yeah I don't think that, that he would want to say that the I don't know the, well take take um, Demeter the the myth that I referred to a minute ago that Alexander Schmiemann talks about which is a myth that's used to explain the recurrence of the seasons throughout the year mm. I don't think C.S. Lewis would want to say that that is factual in the same way that the incarnation is factual. But what is the effect the incarnation has on other how we see other myths? What does it reveal about other myths? Or is it uniquely is it uniquely fact? I think it's uniquely factual, but that doesn't (laughs) 
I think that I think that what he would say is that other myths point to the same fact as the incarnation points to. Hmm. I don't I don't think it could be the same. He says um, now as myth transcends thought, the incarnation transcends myth. So I think I think in that way there is something that's different about the incarnation. Um, from all other kinds of myths. So it's unique. Yeah, it's unique. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's totally unique. Right, of course not. Just yeah. like the Eucharist. Right? Yeah. The Eucharist is unique, but it also tells us something about the world. I mean, it, it's it's not totally unique because it involves two components, myth and fact, to say that it's totally unique when it involves one component that lots of other stories involve and right. another component that lots of other kind of thinking involves. Of course, it's not totally unique, but the fact that those two are wed together in this kind of way does make it unique. Same with the Eucharist. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I, in the reference I just think the analogy there is, is different because I think that what we talk about the Eucharist, we can't really say in the incarnation about providing this as like the grounding, the foundation for all that is to come, you know, in the yeah. same way. I don't think the incarnation does it. I think Homer would get along just fine. Hmm. I think that there's, there is some truth, though, in what David is saying. See, uh, Tim Keller, and not that he's the be-all and end-all, but Tim Keller talks about the story beneath the stories. And I, I do think that there's something in this essay that goes along with that. That, that when C.S. Lewis says that we shouldn't be surprised if other myths... Yeah. Um, what's the language that he use, uses? If other... Um, we must not be nervous, this is the last paragraph. We must not be nervous about parallels and pagan Christs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. Exactly. <clears throat> so I, I do think that, that Lewis is saying something like the incarnation is the story beneath the stories. Mm-hmm. That, that there's, and it's very hard to articulate, which is why I respect what Ian just said. Uh, but but somehow there are others at, at the very least we can say that there are other cosmic stories and other stories in general mm-hmm. that somehow rest on the incarnation yeah and I don't mean to like make it too ambiguous but this also fits into statements like all desire is ultimately desire for God you know what I mean um, things like that are we just using the incarnation as like an example like a specific example, couldn't you say the same thing for like the Mesopotamian text and Noah's Ark or something? Like, I, I'm, I'm not I'm no, not sure it, if it's just purely unique for this example of the incarnation, or if it's purely unique for the mythos of Christianity. Well, and it, but isn't I mean, there's like the Eucharist and the relationship it has to language is the same way. You can string sentences together that are not as true. But language still remains uh, within the um, within the kind of economy of sign and referent that Pickstock talked about. That it's revealed to us by the Eucharist. It does teach us something about language, even when language is perverted. And I think maybe the incarnation teaches us something about myth, even when myth is perverted. What does it tell us? One thing it tells us is that God likes them. Right. Yeah. God likes stories. Yeah. I mean the incarnation it's it's like it's the penultimate revelation of God to man. But listen, Ian, if 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 it's true that 
in the incarnation, the myth became fact. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that imply that it, that it is in some sense foundational to all other myths? Uh, well, my question is, are we willing to say that the myth becomes fact in the story of the incarnation, or are we wanting to say the entire story of the Hebrew people all the uh, way up through the New Testament is uh, the example of with, where myth becomes fact? And I don't think that C.S. Lewis answers that question, certainly not in this essay, but probably not in anything that he wrote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think about that? I certainly have a way to answer that. Oh, a way that I am accustomed to answer that. Right. I think that it's... Actually, it's the incarnation that provides the meaning that allows for the Old Testament to mean something. You know, to that degree. We can, we can elevate, those, elevate those myths of the Old Testament because of Jesus. I mean, they point to Jesus. Jesus is not... The myth of the incarnation is not divorced from the myths of the Old Testament. It consummates and completes them. So therefore, it reveals something about them, just how Jesus reveals the Old Testament to us, you know. So those, they're not on the same level. I mean, if we want to talk about like an underlining, the incarnation is like the underlining of what was true, you know. I like what N.T. Wright says when he says that the Jesus story is a recapitulation of the Israel story. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that that might also be a way of answering your question. To see the Jesus story as kind of like the microcosm of the entire biblical story. Mm -hmm. So that maybe the, the resurrection is analogous to the exodus. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I think that we have good reasons to think along these lines. Yeah. So in that way, it's kind of like the entirety of the biblical story is the Jesus story. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just so, that, so that you're not comparing the Jesus story to the Exodus story. No, they're fused. They're the same story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's that story that uniquely for C.S. Lewis has become fact. There's, there's no other story that you can point to that has become fact for C.S. Lewis. Now, there's some other cool stories. Mm -hmm. The Demeter story is cool. Um... The Lord of the Rings is cool. I mean, we could talk about Nordic myth. We could talk about any stories. But for C.S. Lewis, they haven't become fact. Now, has the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh become fact? No, but guess what? Neither has the Noah story. The Noah story is not a myth become fact, except insofar as it's enfolded into the Jesus story. Hmm. Now, de Lubac talks about the Catholic Church. And yeah. The church spanning not only back to the Old Testament, but also back to the entire history of the human race. Okay. And so yeah. there's, there's this understanding of the church as even being pre-existent before creation. And so I think of his way of including um, pagan religion all the way up to Christianity. He even says, mm -hmm. I, think, I think he says something to the effect of that the Catholic Church is actually the consummation of all pagan religion. And I wonder if the Jesus story is the consummation of all myth. Yeah, Schmimon would love that line from de Lubac. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So he might. He probably would maintain the uniqueness because it is unique. It's the it's the story become fact, but it has to tell us something about myth. 
Like it, I think it communicates. It allows us to read myth in a different way. I wonder if it might say anything about, I don't know, tragedy and comedy. Hmm. What do you mean? Well, maybe that there's something more true about comedy than about tragedy. Although mm. tragedy is also true. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. If, if the Jesus story is tragic at all, then there's elements of truth in tragedy. But at the end of the day, there's something more true about comedy than tragedy. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Hmm. Well, surely, if, if life is ultimately tragic, then that's some sort of nihilism. Mm-hmm. So maybe Christianity's ultimate hope shows that comedy triumphs over tragedy, but also it's what we've talked about as being a hair's breadth from nihilism. Mm. It's that close to tragedy. And a lot of comedies are that close to tragedy. All good ones are. Yeah. I mean, Shakespeare. Um, good stuff. <clears throat> I, I'd, I'd love to read the penultimate paragraph. Or maybe someone else can read it. I don't know. The second to the last paragraph, A Man Who Disbelieved. Because I think it's kind of a shocking statement. And it's one that I find many evangelicals would get squirmish about. Would someone like to read that second to the last paragraph? Um, I can read it. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. A man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented and did not think much about it. The modernist, the extreme modernist, infidel in all but name, need not to be called a fool or hypocrite because he obstinately retains, even in the midst of his intellectual atheism, the language, rites, sacraments, and story of the Christians. The poor man may be clinging with a wisdom he himself by no means understands to that which is his life. It would have been better that by Loisy should have remained a Christian. It would have not necessarily been better that he should have purged his thought of vestigial Christianity. And so that first sentence is kind of shocking to me. A person who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented and did not think much about it. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Again, I love N.T. Wright here because one of the things, and I think Tim Keller does this too, I can't quite remember, but like, I don't know. I don't know if, am I the only one who grew up hearing Easter sermons where the, the real point was, Jesus really did rise from the dead. Like, it's a fact, and here's how you can know it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Whereas C.S. Lewis is saying, no, like that, it's not just about the fact. It's about the myth. It's about the experience. It's about the joy. It's about the affect, the emotions, the savoring, letting it move you in the way that Aristotle talks about in the poetics. Mm-hmm. And what C.S. Lewis says is crazy because he says we, sh- we shouldn't choose between these. It should be both. We should both assent to the fact and savor and taste the myth. 
But if you did have to choose, he says, which one should you choose? <laughs> he says myth. myth. Absolutely, yeah. That's crazy to yeah. me. As a recovering fundamentalist, that's crazy. It is crazy. Um, yeah, well, we'll, I've talked about this in this context before, but there's a guy named Peter Rollins. I don't know if you all know Peter Rollins. I, I, you know, I think Peter Rollins is kind of, is good a lot. Um, not all the time, but he was giving a talk somewhere and someone walked up to him afterward and was like, Peter Rollins, I've been reading your stuff and you seem really liberal. Sometimes I think you're an atheist. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead or don't you? You know, it was, it was like this, like a heresy hunter. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, Peter Rollins, or don't you? And he said, if I'm honest, I have to say that I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and Peter Rollins continues, he says, every time I walk past a homeless person without lifting a finger for them, I deny the resurrection. Every time I get anxious and yell at my wife, I deny the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Every time I think an evil or a lustful thought about someone that uses some other person as a means to an end, mm. I deny the resurrection. And I think that that's similar to what C.S. Lewis is saying. Like, assenting to the fact, yes, that is important, but it is not as important as letting the myth shape you. Mm. Yes, exactly. And, and, and letting it course through your entire being and savoring it meditating on it dwelling on it hmm. living living into it making it a part of your life making it a part of your body yeah so that's really good i was thinking about formation yeah how we're made like you're talking about just continuing that thought if <clears throat> if right belief which is not obviously bad right belief is great it's right good. it's what we it's part of what it's we're huge. describing to I mean, that's right you want you want truth but it's not necessarily right belief that affects your emotions or affects your desires. That's right. Or affects your affections. Ooh, preach it. And if, if we are primarily constituted by what we desire, which I think we are, I think Augustine says it's that a, we are. It's a big claim. That's yeah. what, this is what I've been struggling with for a decade or more. Yeah. I, I think Augustine says that. I think Bonaventure says that. I think Pascal says that. I mm. think... Um, uh, I was going to say something else. Oh, I think that Thomas Cranmer thinks that. Mm. I think, I think Nyssa says that I th okay. in The Life of Moses. I, well, I, yeah. I think that um, uh, Martin Luther thinks that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and Jamie Smith's made it really popular lately, the You Are What You Love, you know, which has been helpful. Um but if, if myth has this unique ability to affect us in that way, then it has far more formative power than really any That's other right. kind of rationalism. That's right. Or armchair theology. That's right. Or whatever. And so it almost makes me, I mean, it kind of makes me sympathetic to even progressive, extremely liberal Christianity in a way that maintains the myth but denies the fact I don't think it's the whole truth but like if I agree with C.S. Lewis 
then it's better than nothing. Well, it's better than fundamentalism. Yeah. I mean, that's what he's saying. I, 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 don't look at me. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. he's saying. <laughs> yeah. But it, and it, Crazy. And, and it can. It can, it, it can maintain that formative power that myth has to, make, to hold on to it. And I even think that that's comforting for me, even in moments of doubt, as a Christian. Mm-hmm. I can I can maintain the story, and I can let it wash over me. I can let it get into my bones. I can let it change me. Now, let me ask you all this. Some of y'all, I think, have been thinking a bit about Baltazar. Was that you? Delu- Delubach yeah. talking about Baltazar? Mm-hmm. No, Milbank talking oh, about yeah, Baltazar. Milbank. And we all, I think we probably all know that Baltazar begins his great trilogy with beauty. Yeah. And he, he, he defers talking about the other transcendentals of truth and goodness later. Mm. Um, that seems related too, right? Definitely. I mean, Baltazar is privileging an an aesthetic pleasure. <laughs> yeah. He's putting that first. How can you prioritize that to good, though? Ask Hans Urs von Baltazar. I mean... Is I, I, the good kind of the most architectonic thing because the good is within all other things? Well, I think they're, the all, they're all in all other things, I think. Yeah. And I think part of it for Baltazar is a, is a pragmatic move or a rhetorical move. Yeah. But at the very least, what you can say is that for Baltazar, beauty is not subservient to the good or the true. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, it doesn't play second fiddle at all. It's, it's at least as, imp- it, it's, it's just as important as the others. But what's interesting is that our tradition has not recognized that. The Christian tradition? Yeah. In the West. Hmm. You know, I've had in my mind a lot this saying that Ashley Knoll says comes from Philip Melanchthon. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind rationalizes. What the heart loves or desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies or rationalizes. Um, if, if all this is true, if, if there's a certain priority of desire that's constitutive of, of our human nature, and if that correlates to a priority of mythos, story, what does that say about our, the, the ministry of the church? Hmm. I mean, you talked about formation. Yeah. I'm thinking about everything from youth ministry to preaching to, I don't know, the impression that people at a, at a pub or a bar get of our Christian community. Yeah. Thoughts? I'll say one thing. Um, recently, at a lecture at SMU, N.T. Wright said that bad Christian art... Bad Christian music, bad Christian little decorations and trinkets are more harmful than good. Mm. And he was advocating for the importance of maintaining beauty. I mean, even at the most practical level, paintings. He was talking about paintings. Maintaining Christian Mm. beauty. And you talk about witness, you talk about 
uh, mm. if we, you know, evangelism, whatever. Um, I think if we're going to make that claim that you're making about beauty being as important as truth mm-hmm. or something like that, mm-hmm. um, then it's not just the content of what pre- we present, but the form hmm. that matters. And this... So it's a good thing that we don't worship in a steel A-frame building. It's a very good thing. Even though it's cheaper. That's way cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> and it also means that yeah. all good pastors and all good teachers need to be also be good storytellers. Wow, that's mm-hmm. convicting. And they need to be you know, people who can not only form yeah. the minds yeah. of the church, but also form its desire. Come on, that's good. How do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> the liturgy is a, is huge. Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, I like what you said about preaching and teaching. Well, it's interesting what you talked about, <clears throat> A-frame metal buildings. Yeah. Corineus, 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 Corineus would ask why in the world the church doesn't worship in A-frame buildings. Right. Mm-hmm. How many times has, you know, have you been asked by, we'll call him, him or her, the village atheist? why churches spend so much money doing this or why the churches should have such big buildings or this and that. It's an appeal to efficiency. And I think if anything, C.S. Lewis shows us that in the prioritization of myth, um, we see that uh, myth triumphs over efficiency. It's a, it, in a way, it's a, yeah. it's a rebellion against mere efficiency. Amen. And mere instrumentalization and utility objectification manipulation it's yeah which we could talk about capitalism but maybe we shouldn't (laughs) maybe we should next time yeah yeah